0: Today is actually our 12th birthday, or anniversary, or birth anniversary, or whatever we call this thing. Um, on the second Sunday in January of 2011, Trailhead Church uh, officially launched. Um, it started several years before that as the Journey Metro East, so while well, we're 12 years as, as uh, Trailhead, we're, we're actually getting, I don't know, somewhere around 15 uh, uh, as, a, as a group that's been meeting. And uh, when we launched, when we, when we started this thing, we, we dreamed um, of a lot of things, right? You start new things full of hope. And uh, when we started Trailhead Church, we were full of hope. Uh, we dreamed that people would come to know Jesus. And we have seen over the last 12 years, hundreds of baptisms. We dreamed of being a community rooted in our community. It was an impossible dream in the beginning. We were having hard enough time just trying to find a place to rent, to meet, but we dreamed of of actually having a building in downtown Edwardsville, something that would help us be rooted and grounded in our community so that we could be a blessing to our community, and the Lord answered that prayer and equipped us to buy and renovate this building and now almost have it paid off. We dreamed of planting churches. We were sent out by a church planting church. They sacrificed so that we could have our start, and we dreamed of replicating that process of sacrificing so that others could have their start. Uh, We continue to be part of two very important church planting networks, Acts 29 and Converge, and through those two and our partnership with them, we have had a hand in planting over the last decade hundreds of churches, both nationally and internationally. We have uh, coached and helped dozens of churches um, through our own personal efforts. We have launched three daughter churches over the last three years. Heights, down in uh, Collinsville. They just got their first building. Man, what a rush that is. I went down there and got a tour of it. Man, nice place. They got the old Knights of Columbus building down in Collinsville. And uh, they've done a great job renovating it. It's exciting to see where they're at. Access Church in Troy. And we just sent out Brian Pacheco and, and his team to plant flat iron uh, out in Arizona, right? And years ago, right, Dan and I dreamed of starting a gospel centered counseling agency in the Metro East. We, we saw all of these great resources across the river in St. Louis and a dearth in our area. And, I man, he quit his job and he went to seminary. And, uh, and we worked and we prayed and. and uh, You know, in 2020, Compass Counseling, uh, he he got it off the ground, started it, and, and it's been launched. So when we started, man, we were filled with hope. When we started, we had all of these dreams of what our community could do, what we could be, how we could be a blessing. My greatest hope, though, wasn't that we would get a building. My greatest hope wasn't that we would accomplish goals Um, my biggest dream was that we would become a people undone and remade by grace. That we would be rich in God's love. And that God's love would work through us, drawing others to Himself even as He worked that love into us and uh, that was an important part of it it wasn't just having a building it was being the right people to inhabit that building it wasn't just planting churches it was planting the right kinds of churches it wasn't just seeing conversions it was, it was, it was the hope of actually growing disciples when we launched uh, Trailhead was born out of a, a failed church plant in the metro east that's part of our story There was a a church plant that that, um, failed and and the journey sent me over to to lead in that group and to cast vision for relaunching. And early on, I was meeting with that group of people and one of the guys in the group was like, um, man, we've been working for for almost a year now uh, before this thing failed and we've seen no growth. We've seen no traction. What's your plan to reach people? (laughs) And I said, huh, that's a great question because my plan is you. (laughs) I'm not showing up to do this thing. I'm not showing up to reach people. Um, It's not on me. It's us, right? God is going to grow this church. And He's going to do it through this community. He's going to do it through us. And so we did some hard stuff and we lost some people in the process right I'm like all right this week we're all going to SIUE and we're going to walk the campus and we're just going to share the gospel we're going to do old school cold call evangelism I'm going to give you these 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 certificates from sacred grounds and you're going to give out free coffee to start a conversation and then while you're in the middle of the conversation you're going to talk to them about Jesus and they're like we're going to do what And I'm like that's exactly right We're going to make ourselves uncomfortable so that others can hear about the comfort they can have in Christ. We're going to to put ourselves out on the front lines of this thing so that others can be invited to the family. And, And we did it, man. We did it. We prayer walked this community. Hours of walking the neighborhoods, the campus, the business districts, and around this building, praying for our community. And God worked God worked through us, and God worked in us. As we start 2023, I can think of no greater hope for us than that we would return to that same eager expectancy. That we would return to that same passion and desire not just to go to church, not just to be at a church, but to be the church. The community of the living God filled by the Holy Spirit, transformed by love, rich in grace, and passionate about sharing that grace with others. To stop seeing church as a set of programs, one of the, one of the dangers of being a church plant that becomes a church is that people lose the passion of being missionaries and they become consumers. They stop thinking about the church as a group of people engaging their community and they start thinking about church as a set of programs. Children's ministry, worship music, preaching. Instead of being the church, they start going to church. Instead of being the sent ones of God, they become consumers of religious behaviors, critics of how good it is. Instead of ambassadors for Christ, they become people in pews. That's probably my greatest fear for our church, because it's the exact opposite of my greatest hope. That we would be a body of believers undone by grace and sent out in love. So, this morning, one central question before we dig into our text, one central question I have for you Who is God putting on your heart to pray for this year? Who is God putting on your heart to pray for this year? Who is God going to use your prayers as the avenue of his sovereign will to call others to experience or grow in his grace? And this morning, I want to call you to pray for them. To stop simply consuming and engage in humility and expectancy because God is faithful to honor the faith of his people. And prayer is essential because it is both the expression of faith and the strengthener of our faith. It takes faith to pray, and it's in prayer that our faith is strengthened. And there are critical ways we can pray, but most important, and this morning what we're going to focus on is specifically praying for people who are far from God to be brought near, people who have grown cold to God, that they might be reignited. Let's take a look at Romans 10. We're looking at Romans 10 this morning, and we're going to be in Romans 10 over the course of January, and uh, this is going to be our focus, because Romans 10 is all about, um, if you want to put it in churchy terms, evangelism, it is about reaching others with the grace of God. So we're taking a look at Romans 10, we're going to be reading verses 1 through 13 this morning. All right, Romans 10. If you don't have a Bible, grab one off the chairs around you in our Bibles. If you're still flipping around, we're on page 946 nine forty six in our Bibles. All right, Romans 10. Brothers, my heart, desire, and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart who has ascended into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart, that is, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. All right, Paul, 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 Paul. In Romans 10, just to remind you, Romans 9, we covered it in December. He's just gotten done explaining uh, and digging into God's sovereignty over human history and over individuals in that history that God softens and God hardens that God is telling his story through human history he is absolutely sovereign and that God in his grace calls us to salvation Paul's response in Romans 10 and I love this because it, it is so counter to how this truth is often often impacts people today when people learn about the sovereignty of God I think often the temptation is to use the sovereignty of God uh, to check out of our responsibility before God um, you know Paul's response is well you know God's in control so I don't really need to take any responsibility for others I don't need to share my faith because if God's in control and he's already sovereignly decreed all things that will occur it doesn't really matter what I do doesn't really matter who i share my faith with doesn't really matter if i'm passionate about about other people hearing about the gospel god's going to do what god will do so therefore i am justified in my apathy uh no the sovereignty of god makes paul more passionate to intercede for those who are far from god it makes him even more committed even for those who are working against him. The the people that he is praying for in this passage, man, he has physical scars, not just emotional ones, not just the, the wounds of the heart from the betrayal of friends, but the physical scars of somebody who has been physically stoned who has been physically abused, who has been physically persecuted? What is his response to this? As one who has been undone by grace and remade in love, he prays for them. Take a look again at Romans 1, 1 through 4, right? Or Romans 10, 1 through through, uh, 4. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, and, and he's speaking here of of the unbelieving Jews that he has been seeking to persuade with the gospel and calling them to Christ, is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but it's not in accordance with knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. There's a whole message in this one paragraph on forgiveness. (laughs) There's a lot here that Paul is able to come with this passion, this love, and this tenderness to pray for a community of people who have committed themselves to work against him, to hurt him, to undermine him. But that's another message. What I want to focus on instead is how love leads Paul to engage them and to see them. Right? He's preaching Jesus. The Messiah, the one who came to be the fulfillment of the law. The one who, who came to, to put an end to the Mosaic law and put a start to this new covenant of grace in which people were called to relate to God through the work of Christ and not the work of the law. And listen, preaching Jesus means the end of the law. The Old Testament Mosaic covenant. And, and, and that means it was the removal of everything that made the Jewish community unique. Preaching Jesus threatened Jewish identity because it removed the markers that made them unique. If there was no law, the Jewish people are left with almost this this personal crisis of who then are we? Everything we've done, everything we think, everything about our lives is governed by this law, is shaped by this law, sets us apart from the rest of the world, and in our view makes us unique and special and valuable. Are you telling me all of that is being removed? Everything they look to to make them feel important. Everything they look to to make them feel safe and secure. Everything they look to was being removed by the preaching of Christ. Now, of course, it wasn't really. They were being invited into the greater identity of those who were in the Messiah, not simply waiting for the Messiah. Those who were now the fulfillment of the law and no longer under the law. Those who could actually live in the grace of God and not try to earn the favor of God. It was a beautiful invitation. But they were focused on what they were losing, not what they were gaining. They were focused on the threat of grace, not the invitation of grace. And that made them behave in in violent ways, painful ways, hurtful ways. Now here's the thing. Everybody around you is a glorious ruin. Everyone around you is a mixture of, of both the glory of God, the image of God, and the ruin of sin. Every person has both hurt and health. Every person has good desires that have been twisted by broken pain that lead them to, to often behave in ways that uh, they shouldn't. Love is what allows us to keep seeing the glory even in the midst of the gory. Love is what allows us to see the good in the midst of the bad. Love is what allows us to see broken people in need of love instead of enemies who need to be distanced or silenced or hurt. And that's what leads him to say, man, he looks at them and he's like, man, they have a zeal. (laughs) He has suffered as a result of that zeal. (laughs) He has suffered. He has actually shed blood as a result of that zeal. But instead of coming and griping and complaining and Full of self-pity and accusation. He doesn't call out their sin. He sees the glory in the midst of the mess. He says, man, they have zeal. They have zeal. There's something praiseworthy there. They have zeal. They work really, really hard. The problem is, They're working really, really hard to climb the wrong hill. And for the first century Jewish person, the wrong hill was the Mosaic Law. They were trying to protect their identity under the old covenant. They were trying to protect who they were under the previous covenant of God that has been fulfilled in Christ and replaced by a new and better covenant. For the first century Jewish person, the wrong hill was the Mosaic law. For the 21st century American person, it's going to be quite different, right? This is where this text gets, I think, often uh, difficult because we're not in the first century. These aren't our people. These aren't our struggles, right? The world isn't divided into Jews and Gentiles, Greeks and barbarians. Not anymore, We are not the first century audience, but that doesn't mean we don't have 21st or 22nd or I don't even know where we are. We're in 2023 and we have our own set of unique challenges, right? Here's the thing is is the hills, the wrong hills that that we can be climbing can be all kinds of things. Religion, people who are trying really, really hard to do good things so that they can be good people so that their good can outweigh their bad. Uh, so that so that so that somehow they can balance the cosmic scales there are people who work really really hard at work work is the hill they're climbing because they think if they can just advance if they can just get the right title or the right degree or or the or the right pedigree that somehow that's going to make them safe somehow going to bring them into the blessing they crave and maybe for the you know for some of us it's not the work it's the it's the money Work is just a means to an end. The more money we have, the more important we are. The more money we have, the more secure we are. The more money we have, the more safe we are. It can be all kinds of stuff. The wrong hill, y'all. The wrong hill. Social status. Political identity. Even the perfect family. The number of people that are laboring under, exhaustively laboring under this vision that somehow if they do the right things... They can have the perfect family, and if they have the perfect family, then they can bring this blessing to themselves and their kids that they themselves were denied because they weren't raised in a perfect family. And pretty soon we have this idolatrous pursuit of perfection instead of a humble, faith-filled pursuit of grace. And it's exhausting. It's climbing the wrong hill and it's taking us to the wrong place. Listen, it's a human impulse that's being exposed here. Not Jewish people, not Jewish history. A human impulse that is universal to human experience. It is the human impulse to try to make ourselves righteous. They are trying to prove themselves right. They are trying in whatever court they have set up in their minds to be able to stand before the judge and not be condemned. But in pursuing their own righteousness, they don't submit to the righteousness of God. That's what Paul says about his first century Jewish audience. Right? Because this is an either or. This can't be a both and. There is no Jesus plus. It's only Jesus. You either trust in your own ability to attain your own right standing or you trust in Jesus and his work to gain it for you. Those are two competing gospels. Two competing approaches to life. Either I make myself right by doing the right things, knowing the right things, performing in the right ways, or I rest in the work that God has done to make me right. Listen, you can have all the zeal in the world, but if you're climbing the wrong hill, you're going to end up in the wrong place. And it breaks Paul's heart to see them working so hard to climb a hill that will end in despair. Because after all their work, Even if they succeed in climbing the hill, which is an impossible task, they will be put to shame. Why? Because they simply cannot do what Jesus did. Take a look at verses 5 through 7. Verses 5 through 7. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law. That the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. All right, some weird imagery here. Paul is quoting pretty extensively from, from Deuteronomy chapter 30. And, and um, there's a lot of nuance here that the first century Jewish audience would have heard and definitely connected with. We are not that audience. Um, and there's a lot here that's worth digging into, a lot of nuance. Um, and uh, I would encourage you to dig into that, actually, more, more deeply in your own personal study. What I want to do this morning is make sure we're understanding the big ideas that are being unpacked. Essentially, what Paul is saying here is, look, the Old Testament is fully aligned with the New Testament. That, that Old Testament covenant law that you are clinging so tightly to actually gave witness to the fact that there was going to come a new covenant, that, that, that it was not going to do what they were hoping it would do, that it was, in fact, simply a forerunner, a precursor to a greater salvation, to a greater message. Yes, you were part of a unique part of human history. As Jewish people born in the physical lineage of Abraham, right? And God worked through the people who were under the covenant and through the covenant itself, the Mosaic law. But even then, you weren't called to fix yourself. It wasn't your obedience that brought you justification. It was your faith. The message of the Old Testament law was never save yourself, fix yourself, make yourself right. The message of the Old Testament law was you can't. So therefore, you better trust the one who can You were called to respond to God, not perform for God, to rest in faith in God's love, not try to earn that love. You can't be God. You can't do what God did. You can't climb your way up to heaven, ascend into heaven to bring the blessing of God down. You cannot descend into the abyss To regain what has been lost and to fix what has been broken, you cannot do what God has done. See, Paul is exposing again that universal human sinful need to try to gain the blessing of God, independent of humble dependence on God. That that. That just that restless need that we have to earn instead of receive. To have something we can be proud of, (laughs) something we can claim credit for, some way we can be right and they can be wrong. It is that lie that we universally believe if I'm going to be blessed, have to be worthy of the blessing if I'm going to be blessed I have to earn the blessing I desire listen y'all it is that universal human lie it is that whispering nagging complaint of sin it is that pride and that shame that drives us this is where overworking comes from right um Overworking is one of those uh, sins that we almost praise in our culture. Right? <laughs> yeah, I work too much. Oh yeah, of course you do, right? That's admirable, right? Well, why do we overwork? Overworking is, is, is sin. Overworking is destructive to ourselves and our families. Overworking may earn you more money, but it actually robs you of the very blessing you're trying to achieve. Where does that come from? It comes from our need to achieve, to earn where does helicopter parenting come from? This obsessive need to be in control of every aspect of our children's lives, to try to secure every possible blessing for them, to make sure that we are the all-star parents, that we can get the badge. I was at every soccer game because my parents weren't. I, I rooted for my kids. I was my kids' number one cheerleader. We are more obsessed with our children in our today's culture than in any culture previously in human history. We find our identity wrapped up in, in their like if they can be a success, we'll be a success. If they, you know what I'm saying? Like, where does that come from? This obsessive need to try to earn for our kids, which gives us so much anxiety and drives us to such distraction instead of allowing us to just rest in grace and trust God with our kids, right? Where does that come from? It comes from this same root, right? It is, it, is, it is where control freaking and comfort binging come from this, right? This need, I will secure the blessing of God. If it's going to be, it's up to me. I don't know if that cricket's telling me that I'm overtime, <laughs> but I am not. <laughs> Just letting you know, if that's your phone... I give you permission to turn it off. (laughs) All right. So, in the passage, I I think we're going to miss a subtle point. If we don't pay careful attention to the language and we think about this in individualistic terms, we are a highly individualistic culture and so that is where our mind automatically goes. This is about me and my trying to perform for God and and my overachieving and my not resting in faith. And, And that is true. I'm not in any way saying that this isn't about our own personal struggle with this sin. But this passage isn't about individual struggle. Again, pay attention to what it says In verse 9, do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? It doesn't say, how will I do it? It says, who's going to do it for me? It doesn't say, who's going to descend into the abyss? It doesn't say, how am I going to get there? Here's the thing, I think fairly early on we realize we can't climb to heaven to secure the blessing we crave. I think fairly early on, we despair of the idea that we have the ability to fix what is broken and restore what has been lost. But that doesn't change the desire. So what ends up happening is we start looking for someone to do it for us. And that's why we end up forming moral communities. We form moral communities in our attempt to gain what we know we can't gain on our own and secure what we know we can't get on our own and fix what has been broken. Now listen, when I say moral communities, I don't necessarily mean religious communities, although religious communities are also part of this, right? It can be religious. I remember fairly early on as a young believer, I don't know, somewhere in Iowa, I don't remember the details, but I remember the conversation because it struck me. I I was talking to a woman at a church, I don't know, I was there doing some work service project or I don't even know why I was there, but, but I was talking to her and I was talking about my new faith in Christ and I was talking about how excited I was to be a Christian. And she was like, young man, I'm not just a Christian. I'm a Southern Baptist. I was like, oh, are those different things? <laughs> I was unaware. Like literally, that's what, that's what she said to me, right? Now, I'm not Baptist bashing, okay? I'm a Baptist okay this is not about bashing it's about identity this is this is it was it was enlightening to me to realize that that what she was saying wasn't just for her christian was almost like secondary to the primary it's not just good enough to be a christian you got to be the right kind of christian it's not good enough to just believe in jesus you need to be in the right group of people who believe in jesus moral community we're right they're wrong we're superior they're inferior we're in the in-crowd, they're in the out crowd. Now, I'm not saying maybe they're not going to heaven, but they're not us. We're the ones who are getting it right, right? This is the same idea that pervades cultish thinking. You know, a lot of you guys know I was raised Jehovah's Witness, and, and this pervaded my childhood. Be afraid of everyone who's not a Jehovah's Witness, because we're the only ones who got it right. We're the only ones who think right, we're the only ones who who know what's right, we're the only ones who and everyone else is dangerous. Everyone else is wrong. Moral communities formed around religious convictions. And it can happen with any group. Y'all, again, this is universal. I've talked to Catholics who have this same. I've talked to non-denominational people who are proud of the fact that they're not denominational. That weird tag that says, I'm not a thing. And everyone else is, right? Moral communities. And what ends up happening is, is we value our moral community more than the God who created the morals. We start looking to our moral community to climb into heaven to bring down the blessing of God and to go down into the abyss to solve the problems we don't know how to solve on our own and to heal what is broken and restore what is lost. We start trusting our tribe more than our God. And that is our way of trying to secure the righteousness of God instead of receive the righteousness of God to establish our right standing before God, where we can take a claim on the blessing of God instead of simply receiving that standing by grace. So it can be religious, right? But listen to me, you don't have to be a church guy to be working at establishing your own righteousness. This is not a religious problem. It is a human problem, right? We all know people who are part of the tolerance movement (laughs) who are about as intolerant as they could ever be. We all know people who trumpet inclusivity and open-mindedness. Well, as long as you're inclusive like I'm inclusive and open-minded like I'm open-minded because if you're not open-minded like I'm open-minded, you're closed-minded and therefore I have a right to be closed-minded towards you. Listen, this is why I use the phrase moral communities. We all do it. We gravitate toward tribes. Groups of people. Groups where the think, our thinking, the things that we think make us right, are trumpeted, platformed, celebrated. And the things that we think make others wrong are condemned, mocked, and ridiculed. These are groups that make us right or wrong. We gravitate toward these groups because... we're terrified of grace or we resist grace or we hate grace so it's pride and it's shame but under the pride and the shame what Paul is seeing is that what motivates it what's driving it is an even deeper longing for blessing what we really crave is not being right what we really crave is being blessed we want the fullness and flourishing of life we're just climbing the wrong hill to get there we think it's our commitment our work our right thinking our our moral convictions our tribe that will climb into heaven to grab the blessing of God or go into the abyss to fix the problems we don't know how to fix And that's where we need to recognize for all the smoke and mirrors that in reality these are competing Gospels to the Gospel of Christ. Instead of calling us to trust in the work of God, they're calling us to work, to take hold of a blessing that only God can deliver. We try to establish our own righteousness by being right. See, the righteousness that comes by faith doesn't say, who will do this for me? It says, God has done this for me, right? Take a look at verses eight through 13. But what does it say? What does this, this, um, this faith say, true faith? It says, the word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. It's a quote, again, from Deuteronomy 30. That is the word of faith that we proclaim Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Listen, saving faith doesn't try to find a replacement for Jesus. I mean, that seems like it should be so obvious it it, it should go without saying, But, but we spend so much of our time trying to find something to trust other than Jesus. Someone, something, some performance, some set of beliefs. True faith rests in Jesus. It doesn't try to do the work of God in place of God. It rests in the promises of God. The word of promise that Jesus was the embodiment of God's blessing in heaven, come down to us. We don't have to work our way up to him. He came to us, met us where we were. And, and that this same Jesus descended into the abyss through his death, burial, and resurrection to fix what we couldn't fix, to solve the problem we couldn't solve, to pay the debt we couldn't pay, and to heal. Would have been wounded and even bring back to life what had died. This promise is near to you, as close as your mouth and as close as your heart. To use Isaiah 30's language, now this language gets a little. It's interesting. Paul's playing again on on some some imagery and some language from from. Um, Isaiah 30 and and you kind of need to know the background a little bit I think some preachers go a little flat line literal on this and they get themselves in trouble because they're like well you got to confess Jesus with your mouth and if you don't confess Jesus with your mouth you you can't be saved because it says it right here and and um, that kind of flat literalism doesn't Play well with the nuance of the text, right? Paul is playing with some images, these images of the mouth and the heart that come out of that original prophetic text. He's, listen, he's not trying to add anything to what he's already taught. He's just spent um, nine chapters basically saying that you're saved by grace through faith, right? That you receive the grace of God not by showing up with your good works, but by showing up with your need right? That that you are justified, not on the basis of being a good person, but on the basis of being a bad person who shows up fully aware and humble in their need to receive a grace they could never claim, right? He's not saying you have to have verbal confession to be saved. He's saying you're saved by faith. But he is playing with these two images from Isaiah 30, talking about how near this word is to us. The word is near to you in in your mouth and And in your heart, this blessing you crave is embodied in a promise you can trust. Given to you by a Savior who has proven his love and his trustworthiness. By coming from heaven to earth, not just to be one of us, but to die for us and rise again on our behalf. This is a a beautiful message of love that you can hear, that you can understand, that you can confess and you can share. God has done the work and delivered to you the message of his salvation. And this gift is available to everyone. To everyone. It was a message that was radically inclusive in Paul's day. And honestly, it's radically inclusive in our own, right? Whatever moral community you're coming out of, Jew or Gentile, Greek or barbarian, Republican or Democrat, straight or gay, Baptist or Catholic, couture or CrossFit, wherever you find... Your sense of self-righteousness, pride, worth, and rightness. The gospel is a universal invitation to leave behind your work and come rest in his. Take a look again at verses 12 and 13. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all bestowing his riches on all who call him, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. What a beautifully inclusive invitation. Anyone, anyone who will simply step away from their self-righteousness in order to receive an alien righteousness, to trust in Jesus and receive God's righteousness, will be saved they will not be put to shame by climbing the wrong hill, by trying to earn a righteousness they cannot attain. So what should we do with this? Um, This thought continues in the next paragraph. We're gonna pick it up next week, but this is what I wanna leave you with this morning. Um, I think it's obvious from this passage that if nothing else, we should be passionate about seeing people far from God brought near? That if we have apathy in our hearts about people knowing Jesus, there is something stunted or maybe temporarily asleep or apathetic about our faith. This is a message of eternal consequence. It is a work that costs God more than we could ever understand. God obviously is passionate about people being saved, believing the gospel, and becoming part of the community of faith. If we're not, we need to ask why. Why have we grown apathetic? Or even cynical? Are there people in your life that you've given up on? People that don't know God that you wish did, but you've given up on them because you think they're a lost cause? Do you really have so little faith in the sovereignty of God that you think someone could be too far for God to reach? Have you stopped praying for your neighbors? Stopped thinking about yourself as an ambassador of Christ. One who has not only received the blessing of God, but has been entrusted with the message of that blessing that others might be blessed as well. The first step in addressing, and I'm not saying this to condemn you, and I hope you don't hear that. This is, again, common cycles. That occur in the Christian life. These are common cycles that we have to continually be fighting against. We are always going to be sliding toward apathy if we are not continually renewing our amazement at the grace of God. How do we do that? How do we reawaken our desire to see others blessed? The first step we can take is committing to pray. Prayer is an act of faith that awakens faith. Prayer is, is A declaration of hope that actually increases expectancy. Prayer is a response of love to God's love that actually increases our love for others. We need to pray. That's what Paul is doing, right? Again, verse 1, brothers, my heart desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. No one is beyond the reach of God. He's the one who came down from heaven to bring the blessing. He's the one who descended into the abyss to fix everything that was broken and restore all that had been lost. He defeated sin and death and he is the Lord of life. We have received his grace. Friends, let's allow that grace to awaken within us. A generosity of love that we might be passionate that others also receive that grace to love even as we have been loved and to share with others this incredibly good news let's begin by praying who is god putting on your heart who is the spirit leading you to pray for he is inviting you to be part of his work He is inviting you to be an instrumental and essential part as an ambassador that others might respond to the message and stop climbing the futile hills of self-righteousness and come to rest on the one who climbed it for them, the hill of love, that they might receive grace. So that's my homework for you this week. I want you to pray about that. I want you to think about that. Pray your way into praying. Ask God who he wants you to pray for. And then just start praying for them. Allow God to formulate and awaken within you a a heart of affection for them, even if they've hurt you. People that are far from God who need to respond to grace, those who have grown cold to grace, who need to be reawakened. Let God lead you to pray and start praying. All right, I'm gonna close us there for this morning. I'm gonna pray for us. We're gonna move into a time of response share communion and uh, let me pray for us Father God I thank you that uh, all we're talking about is imitating you you are the God who initiates you are the God who loves therefore you are the God who is never passive you are the God who is patient but in your patience you never grow apathetic and you never grow cynical. You wait, but even in your waiting, you're active because you're loving. And we thank you that that patience has enabled us to receive, to hear this incredible invitation of grace, to believe in Jesus, to be made new, to be forgiven, set free. Will you awaken within us, Lord? a desire to walk that love out in very practical ways in the lives of others. This morning, Lord, I pray that you would turn us into a community of prayer, reawaken us to the power and the beauty of prayer, the honor of prayer, the reality that we get to talk to a sovereign God, and in talking with that sovereign God, be part of the instrumental process of you working out your sovereign will, knowing that our prayer matters, that you are a good father who loves to hear from your children and you love to honor the requests, that you are in fact working in us even as you seek to work through us, to bless us even as we grow in our desire to see others be blessed. Turn us into a praying community. Awaken within each one of us the resolve to start bringing those that are far from you before you and to plead with you that you might exercise your power on their behalf and that you would honor those requests as you love to do. And we pray all of this in the mighty and powerful name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and all of God's people said, amen.